Father, through the power of your word, uh, may your truth challenge us today. Father, we are a needy people in so many ways. And so refresh us and encourage us through your word. Take your word and, and let your Holy Spirit use it to minister, to convict, to challenge, to encourage, to build up. Father, remove the scales from our eyes and, and the pride and the arrogance and the, the self-deception that we're so prone to, thinking ourselves to be something other than what we are. Dirty sinners in your presence, apart from your grace, unworthy of your blessing. So help us to walk in obedience. Help us to receive your word in sincerity now and build your church, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, will you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 34, if you're new with us today, and it's always so nice to look out and see folks coming in and and, uh, seeing what's happening at Fellowship Bible Church. We're just a simple Bible church. This is pretty much what you see is what you get here. And um, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis so that you know that um, we, when we teach through the Bible, we take what comes next. And I was thinking almost in terms of a disclaimer for the passage, but I don't think that's right. This is the Word of God. Here's the story. And can I tell you, this is an amazing story today. In Genesis chapter 34, we are well into the life of Jacob. Many of you are familiar with Abraham, then his son Isaac, and then his, Abraham's grandson Jacob. And, and the book of Genesis accounts and recounts for us significant history in the life of Jacob. And in chapter 34, we have one of those, and they're in the Bible in different places, kind of an R-rated chapter. It, it is brutal in its honesty. It is brutal in its sinfulness. And yet there are some powerful spiritual lessons to be learned from the life of Jacob and his family in Genesis chapter 34. I hope you have Genesis open. We'll read it in just a moment. But have you heard of Glenn Coffey? Do you know that name? I think you ought to. I don't know him either. I just ran into him in a headline article that I happened to click on as I keep track of sports. Glenn Coffey is a second-year rookie for the Um, San Francisco 49ers, Mike Singletary's team. He came out of uh, Alabama, and uh, he went in the third round of the draft last year, and he's just a second-year rookie. What's so significant about Glenn Coffey is that he retired from the NFL this week. Let me read the story. It's pretty interesting. Most guys would be uh, give everything they own for a chance to be in the locker room of an NFL team, Some of you I know are not interested in sports at all. I'm pretty excited for football to begin. But I thought that Glenn Coffey's testimony was remarkable. Listen to what the account from the paper says. It's not often that a third-round pick retires from the NFL in just his second season. But that's the story of Alabama running back Glenn Coffey, who announced this Friday, that was two days ago, that he was leaving the game of football. Coffee explained his decision in a statement that was released through the 49ers team press. Quote, This has been a tough decision for me to make, he said, but at this time in my life, I feel it best for me that I move on from football. I appreciate what the 49ers, my teammates and coaches have done for me, and I wish them a blessed season and all the blessed 
All the best in the future. Coffey later on met with Matt Barrows of the Sacramento Bee newspaper, and he told him the real reason for his decision. It says that it was a move that took everyone on the team by surprise. I don't know what they're saying, but I'm telling you, not only did it surprise him, I almost guarantee, and you see if you don't agree with me, that they have no clue what he's talking about. Coffee said to Matt Barrows of the Sacramento Bee, quote, It was a struggle for a long time. Actually, when I look back, I feel I never should have entered the draft in the first place. Football was no longer my dream. I found Christ in college. It changed my view on everything. But I still was a football player because it was expected of me. It was something I did all my life. I was basically wasting the 49ers' time. Now, I don't want to imply in any way that it's wrong for a Christian to play in the NFL. But you know what Glenn Coffey discovered? He discovered something, and don't you have respect for that kind of testimony? I mean, in the United States and in our culture... It's hard to get any higher than an NFL pro football player with bonus contracts. And he was playing well for a second-year rookie to be in that locker room. I don't know what he was thinking exactly, but somewhere along the line, Glenn Coffey realized something that Jacob, in our story this morning in Genesis 34, had to learn the hard way. Maybe you've had to learn it the hard way. It is a basic principle in the Christian life, and it is this. When I'm not where God wants me to be, nothing is right. When I'm not where God wants me to be, nothing is right. Now, I haven't talked to Glenn Coffey, and I don't really know the details. You know as much as I do now on that story. But I kind of imagine it's something like this. He's in the locker room. He's been at summer camp this year. This evidently has been going on for a while. They're joking around, snapping each other with towels, carrying on, cracking jokes putting on their their girdles and their shoulder pads, not those kind of girdles, but, you know, getting all outfitted. And inside Glenn Coffey's head, he's like watching himself. Have you been there? And he's watching himself in the locker room and he's thinking to himself, what am I doing here? Because for Glenn Coffey, for him personally, he knew evidently, that that is not where God wanted him to be. So that this past Friday morning, when he came and parked his car and walked into the locker room and walked on through and found Mike Singletary, and he said, Coach, I'm out of here, man. What? I don't belong here anymore. Why? I wonder if Mike Singletary understands, because he's a professing believer in Christ, When you're not where you're supposed to be, coach, nothing is right, and this isn't right. Let's turn now to Jacob's story in Genesis chapter 34, and let me tell you, Jacob is not where he's supposed to be. He's only 20 miles from there, 20 miles short of God's will. You need to understand that The best we can calculate based upon what time he left Laban, his encounter with Esau that we've already had in previous chapters, and the age of his family, he evidently takes about an eight or a ten year sabbatical from being where God wants him to be. Isn't this Jacob's testimony? 
Two steps forward for God, three steps back. Two more steps forward, three steps back, going backwards. Then he kind of gets it together and he does the, the three steps forward and the two steps back. And he's kind of moving forward with God. You know how that feels? And he's getting to where God wants him to be, but he hasn't gotten there yet. And he's going to find out the hard way with a huge price to pay in his family. And when you're not where God wants you to be, nothing is right. The most important priority you have in your life when you realize that is that I better get where God wants me. Let's read the story. It breaks it down, itself down in, in several parts, and we'll comment on that in just a minute. But I think this morning we'll read chapter 34 in its entirety. You follow along. It is an unbelievable story. We're going to pick it up, actually, in chapter 33 and verse 18, because I want you to get something clearly from the start, because it could be confusing otherwise, and that is this, that in our story today, there is a city called Shechem, all right, a place And in Shechem, there's a guy who lives there whose name is Shechem. So Shechem lives in Shechem. All right? And neither place is, neither guy nor place is a very good thing. All right? He's one of the key players in our story today. So don't get that confused. And keep in mind now that Jacob has left Laban behind. Remember we talked about that, didn't we? That sooner or later we got to leave Laban. He's left Laban. He worried about Esau. Esau came and forgave him and hugged him. And he's heading to where God told him to be. Chapter 31, verse 13. He told God he would go back to Bethel and God told him to get back to your father. He stops 20 miles short of God's will for his life. Verse 18, chapter 33. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, that would be from where Laban was, he arrived safely. It's a long journey. He arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan. For those of you who are newer, I'm reading from the New International Version, the NIV. He arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. There you go. See, the city of Shechem in Canaan and then the the father of Shechem, Hamor. He buys land from uh, Hamor, who's an important guy in this city. The plot of ground where he pitched his tent... And there he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. And when Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and he violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. And when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the field with livestock, so he kept quiet about it until they came home. And then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields. As soon as they heard what had happened, they were filled with grief and with fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamer said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. 
Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like. Only give me this girl as my wife. I'll pay whatever you ask me. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. But we will give our consent to you on one condition only, and that is that you become like us by circumcising all of your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and we'll go home. Verse 18. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who was the most honored of all his father's household, lost no time in doing what they said, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to their fellow townsmen. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours, but the men will consent to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, be, uh, won't their, livestock their property and all their animals become ours? So let us give our consent to them and they will settle among us. Verse 24, So all the men went out of the city, All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamer and his son Shechem. What men will do for money, huh? And every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and they attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamar and his son Shechem to the sword, and they took Dinah from Shechem's house, and they left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies. They looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flock and herds and donkeys, everything else of theirs in the city, out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in their houses. And then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in the land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should we have treated, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? And it ends with that rhetorical question. Well, I don't know what you think when you hear a story like that. I think that's a remarkable story. Obviously a brutal story. And there are, as I said, some incredibly important spiritual lessons here for us. Let's break the story down and kind of amplify it just a little bit. There's kind of five key aspects to the story. The first is uh, this atrocity of Shechem. The atrocity of Shechem. We don't know exactly how this unfolds. We're given such limited detail. We know that uh, Dinah is the one daughter who was born to uh, Jacob through his four wives, remember. 
And she is the daughter of Leah, the unloved wife of Jacob. We've talked quite a bit about that. We don't know exactly what the circumstances were in the home. What was it with Leah that she went out? It says she went out to visit the women. There are some Hebrew scholars who who see an inference in the Hebrew, which is translated into English here, that it's translated went out, that, that it was kind of a, has a rebellious tone to it. It does say she went out to see the women. We don't know if this is the first time she did this or if this is something that was a pattern of hers. Her father had stopped there on the plain there outside of near the city of Shechem. And so she had 11 brothers. There were servants and there was a staff around her because Jacob at this time we know was very wealthy. So it could have just been a normal thing that she had girlfriends. She might have even known people she was going to see. It could be that uh, she just kind of got away in, a, in somewhat of a rebellion. There's also an inference in the Hebrew that, um, that, that went out that she, it, she wanted to be seen. Maybe she's growing up. She wanted to just not be in the kitchen all day. She wanted to get away. I'm not implying that she is guilty. But it is obvious that her father didn't protect her. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. It is evident that in this culture that it was totally inappropriate for a young woman to be out without a chaperone. chaperone. One of her brothers or her father should have been with her. She went out alone into a wicked city. The Canaanites, we know, did not not respect women as much as, as Israel did. We also know that this is a man's world. Women were like property. Women did not have uh, the rights of a man in this culture. It's much the same today in some of the Middle Eastern cultures. It's a man's world. What the man wants, he gets. Shechem, it says, violated her. The NIV says, the King James uses the same word that the NIV uses later then. He defiled her. Evidently, in some circumstance, he grabs a hold of her, and the word definitely implies a violence, an unwillful unconsensual event where he defiles this young woman. He evidently had noticed her. If not, by the time he was through with her, he decided that he really liked this girl. He wanted her for a wife. It says that Shechem is the outstanding son of Hamor. He goes to his father, and much like we hear uh, old Samson, remember him in Judges chapter 14, when he looks at the women of, of the Philistine nation and says to his father, Go get her for my wife. It's no, hey, pops, I got something to talk to you about. Uh, Maybe we could work out a deal here. Hey, dad, would you please do something for me? No, you got an arrogant punk son going up to his dad. Get her for me. I want her. I love her. He's burning with lust now and passion. Interesting that his father capitulates. But what is uh, so prevalent in the story to me, what we see next after this atrocity is we see the passivity of Jacob. I can't help but think that that Jacob is, uh, for some reason, not too concerned about this situation. For one thing, he doesn't ever speak up about it. His sons are in the field and you take from it and by the, based upon the behavior of her brothers, that it's her brothers who care about it more than her father. I wonder why that would be. Oh, that's right. She's one of Leah's the unloved wife. If he didn't love her mother, maybe he didn't love her. Well, there's a warning there, isn't there, fathers? 
If our daughters don't get their father's love and attention, they're going to find a man to give them some love and attention. And what a challenge. And Jacob is passive in the story. We're going to see that again. He's passive in that he's silent. Later on, when his sons cook up this, this corrupt plan, this deceitful um, bent of, of sacrilege, taking something that is sacred in circumcision and turning it into a scheme to be able to murder these guys, not just the offenders, but to do this genocidal act and wipe out the whole city, which is sinful and wrong. I'm not saying that Hamar and Shechem didn't stand accountable in a serious way, even the death penalty later under Mosaic law for rape. Jacob's silent. They've got a plan. He's just silent through the whole passage. When he does speak up, what's he care about? He cares about his own skin. He never once references his broken daughter. It's all about him. The atrocity of Shechem, the passivity of Jacob is notable. But you can't, you can't help but be set back by the audacity of Hamar. Shechem goes to his father and says, Father, get her for me. And so he goes right to Jacob. We don't know how Jacob found out about this. We don't know if somebody saw this thing happen. We don't know if Dinah came and told her father this is what happened. We don't know. But when Shechem said, hey, I like this woman for my wife. Let's go get her. Hamer gets on his donkey, goes over to Jacob and says, hey, Jacob, oh, buddy, oh, Jake, let's talk here, buddy. And in this culture, you had arranged marriages. It was totally appropriate for the fathers to, to deal for their children on their marriage arrangement. He hits Jacob where he's soft in the underbelly, doesn't he? The business end of the deal. Hey, let's work a deal here. You talk about bodacious. Hey, my son, he, you know, he kind of defiled your daughter, but he really does love her, so let's kind of smooth this thing over. And if we really work this out, it's win-win, man. You know, we'll trade. You got sheep, I got sheep. You, you know, I got, I got donkeys, you got donkeys. We'll work a deal, man. We'll make this thing happen. And we'll even marry one another. We'll just make this thing really positive. It's so audacious. And that moves into the part of the story. Evidently, Jacob is somewhat open to it because he doesn't shut it down. By then, the brothers have come in from the field. They hear what's going on. And what does it say? In, uh, in verse 7, it says, They were filled with grief and fury. That's strong language, isn't it? Because this thing that had happened is something that should not happen. And those brothers are enraged. We have the animosity then of the brothers. It's interesting, again, the passivity of Jacob is so noticeable. He, it doesn't say that he's grieved. It doesn't say that he has fury. The brothers are the ones that step up here. They kind of have the moral high ground in this story, don't they? Even though they abuse it then and turn into murderers. The animosity of the brothers is great. And so they cook up that plan where they take that which is sacred and profane it. This mark of the Abrahamic covenant, this circumcision that God had told Abraham. And remember, Abraham had lined up his servants. God told him, I want you to mark your men. There's to be a mark on them. And he lined up hundreds of his servants in one day, circumcised them. Passed that on to his son, Isaac. Isaac circumcised his boys. We're men of the covenant. We're God's people. We're different than the rest of the world. And this is what we do. And they take that and they play with it. They say, oh, here's the deal. Yeah, we can do this. 
They do it out of a heart of deception. Clearly, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Hard to find a greater deceiver than their father Jacob in the Bible. It's also part of their culture, isn't it? Even to this day, in the Middle East, in some parts of the Middle East, in some countries, in some cultures, subgroups of the Middle East, there are treacherous, deceitful, lying people. When you make deals, smile in the face and stab in the back. You've got to really watch it. And they go, they have a big grin on their face. On the inside, they're full of fury and rage. Oh, you want to make money off of us? You want to marry our children? You want to marry my sister? Okay, yeah, we can do this. I don't know how they cooked it up and how they passed it on to one another, but they convinced the guy to circumcise all the males in Shechem. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that would be a little bit of a tough assignment to go back to Shechem and say to all the guys, hey guys, I got a really great business deal going, but here's what has to happen. Say, who do you think you are? Speak for yourself, bud, not me. And I think it's kind of funny. I think there's actually, you can almost read in the, between the lines, notice when Hamar and Shechem go over and try to convince them. In verse 20, let's look at that again. Look what it says. So Hamar and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to their fellow townsmen. And now they're going to run their sales pitch on them, ending up in convincing these guys that they ought to be circumcised. Verse 21, these men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. Uh, um, um, But, but, the men will consent to live with us as one people. And then I can hear them getting faster. um, That our uh, people, only on the condition that our males be circumcised themselves. Won't their livestock really be great to have? I just think they schmooze these guys. And all of a sudden in their mind, cha-ching, cha-ching, how much money am I going to make out of this deal? I don't know what they're thinking, but they all go for it. And every man in the city meets at the gate. They line them up and they get her done. Every male. Well, we then end the story with the obvious brutality of Simeon and Levi. It wasn't all the brothers, it was just two. It's notable that these are full brother and sister to Dinah. Common mother, common father. In the life of Jacob, and I've never really seen this before as much as I have in our study here, and as we head towards the story of Joseph, we'll see it amplified even more. And we'll talk about it a little bit more. But the partiality from Jacob, how that brings such animosity between the children. And so Simeon and Levi come up with this brutal, brutal plan. I don't know what they said. I don't know what they thought. I don't know if they invited the other boys in. The other boys evidently knew what was going on. I take them based upon the chronology and timeline of the journey that they're somewhere around the age of 20, 22 right now. They're old enough to be strong men. They're old enough to be warriors. And I think they were, their hearts were livid. They were full of rage. I don't think they talk much. They get their stone out and they sharpen their swords and their chin is set and their hearts are hard and their guts are tight. What are you guys doing? Uh, We're just going over to Shechem. What are you going to do with your sword? Uh, You'll see. The other boys knew because they came and they pillaged immediately. And there's Simeon and Levi. Let's go. You ready? I'm ready. Let's go. 
says it was the third day. The men were sore. They were all taking pretty good care of themselves, sitting low, taking it easy. And Simeon and Levi go kick down doors and start wailing with their swords, and they slaughter every man in the city. It's incredible. Genocide. Sinful murder. Way beyond justice. Releasing their rage with the swinging of their sword. And I can picture them soaked in blood and gore, grabbing Dinah, says she was at Shechem's house, taking her back home to her father's house. What a pitiful young woman she must have been at that point. What do you do with a story like that? It occurs to me that there are four important spiritual principles that Jacob and his sons violated that made all this happen. I think we can take some important lessons. We might not sharpen our swords and go behead our neighbors. But you know, um, careless spiritual living has consequence, doesn't it? And Jacob is certainly being careless with his walk with God, and his sons are being very careless. And I don't think they woke up one day and said, how can we neglect our relationship with God? How can we just kind of get cooled off spiritually? How can we just kind of get like the rest of the world? How can we do stupid things so that we ruin our lives? No. But remember our Glenn Coffey and Jacob. When you're not where God wants you to be, nothing's right. And when you're not where God wants you to be, things happen that aren't supposed to happen. Spiritual principle number one that was violated here is this. Number one, obedience is the pathway to blessing. Obedience is the pathway to blessing. I would like to propose that a lot of the reason this happened is simply because Jacob was careless in his obedience to God. He knew exactly where God wanted him. He knew exactly where he was supposed to be. And he stopped 20 miles short. Why? Probably because the grass was better for his cattle and his sheep. Probably because there was good wood there. Remember, and it said earlier in the chapter that he built corrals for his animals. He looked around and he used his human brain. He didn't pray. He didn't think. He just said, this is good. This is good. Let's stay here. And he stayed there eight to ten years. Twenty miles short of his father. Twenty miles short of Bethel where he worshipped the Lord where he told God he was going and where God told him to go. Just 20 miles. It's possible that Isaac came to visit him. It might have felt really good. Hey, pops, great to see you. Sit down and have some goat stew. This is good. No, it's not good. You're not where you're supposed to be. You're 20 miles short. Well, I'm in Canaan. This is my land. I bought it out of faith. I put money into this land, believing that I'll have rights to this land even in the future. Yeah, but, but God told you to go to Bethel. And you're in Shechem. You see, incomplete obedience is not obedience. Delayed obedience is not obedience. And it opens the door for a stumbling. It was almost a good plan. He left Laban. He got through Esau. He was right there. He's so close to being where God wants him to be. Surely God can bless me here. No. 
You see, because God isn't concerned about very much in us or about us or around us at all until we are obedient. Do you remember that great story when King Saul lost his job because he didn't wipe out the Amalekites? And God's man Samuel went up to him in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. This is what it says. Listen. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Translate that into today. But Lord, I was in church Sunday morning and I sang hymns and I really meant it. And I don't even like hymns. That old pastor van. But you're not obedient this week. Don't go to church on Sunday morning and try to cover your week-long disobedience with singing praises to him. Because God is not interested in the fat of rams. He is not interested in the incense of sacrifice if there's not an underlying obedience. And that's Jacob's problem. And look at chapter 33, verse 20. He gets to Shechem, and I don't know that it was inappropriate to do this, but once he builds an altar, verse 20, there he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Here I am, God. I'm going to worship God right here. This piece of ground. No, Jacob, I told you to go over there, 20 miles over. You know when your kids do that, don't you? Here, I want you to sit in this chair right here. Okay, and they sit in this chair right here. What's going on? I said that chair right there. Oh, I thought you meant this chair. You stinking liar. You knew you didn't, I didn't mean that chair. And you knew exactly what you were doing Your pop wanted you to sit in this chair and you didn't want your pop to tell you what to do so you sat in this chair because that's the way we are, isn't it? And Jacob said, I know you want me over there, but this is a really good spot and I think I can really make some money here with these Shechemites. Yeah, but when you're not where you're supposed to be, Jacob, nothing is right. Spiritual principle violation number one Obedience is the pathway to blessing. And Jacob was trying to get the blessing of God, not being positioned where God wanted him to be. It doesn't work. Secondly, second spiritual principle that is violated here. Bad company corrupts good morals. That is almost a direct quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, I want to make something very clear. I think that Shechem is 100% accountable for his rape. I think that Shechem violated this young girl. I doubt that it was consensual at any level, especially after a certain point. The language is strong. She was defiled. This thing should not be. It was not supposed to happen. And I don't think that Dinah is guilty of Shechem's sin. But can I tell you something? If she had never been there, it would have never happened. She's not responsible for his sinful, wicked behavior. There's a lot of young people getting ready to go to college this week. I can see you out there. Will you listen closely to me for a minute? You need to write this on your forehead in a Sharpie pen and renew it every second day. Bad company corrupts good morals. Get your roommate to write it backwards so when you look in the mirror it makes sense. I want to tell you that the most dangerous window of time in a young person's life is 18 to 25. There is no more vulnerable, dangerous time than 18 to 25. And if you're in that window, you need to listen closely. And here's what will get you in trouble. 
You say, well, I didn't do anything wrong. No, but you were at the wrong place at the wrong time and God didn't want you there. You'll be sitting in your room and you'll be studying and it's time to go to bed and your mommy and daddy taught you to go to bed at like 11 o'clock at night at least. But now you're 18, you're 19. You're a 19-year-old college sophomore. You're the dumbest creature on God's green earth. (laughs) And you say to yourself, my mommy's not here. I don't have to go to bed if I don't want to. I don't have to. I don't have to. And now it's like 1 o'clock in the morning and you're listening to music and it's time to go to bed and your roommates say, let's go to a party. You say, but it's 1 o'clock in the morning. What's that got to do with anything? I'll tell you, it's got everything to do with it. Because when your old grandma said nothing good ever happens after 11 o'clock at night, she knew exactly what she was talking about. And you're going to go places that are out of God's will and things are going to happen that aren't supposed to happen. You say, but it's not my fault. No, but if you never went, you'd never, it'd never happen. You better listen. You better listen. You hear it in the news all the time, don't you? Some outstanding young man, a West Point cadet, some guy from outstanding football player from some team, in on an honor scholarship playing ball or in school on honors, outstanding young man all the way through. And he, some young lady who's in the band, marching band at her university, and she's an outstanding young lady and just a quality person, and they show up dead on the bank of the canal outside their city. What's that all about? And you think, whoa, man, why would somebody do that to that fine young person? And then as you listen to the story, you realize that the hotel cameras saw him leaving the hotel at 2.30 in the morning. Some guy was at their side. Are they guilty of their own murder? No, but it would have never happened if they didn't leave. Bad company corrupts good morals. Listen, a Christian has to separate himself from the evil. You look, and sometimes you young people, your dad tells you and your mom tells you, you shouldn't go there, you shouldn't go. You don't trust me. And if they're wise, you know what your dad says? I don't trust myself in that place. I don't go there. Nobody should go there. Stay away. Separate yourself. Come out from among them. We had that verse a few weeks ago. And be separate, says the Lord. If Jacob had been paying attention... He wasn't paying attention to his daughter's behavior. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And things happened that weren't supposed to happen. Third spiritual principle that was violated is this. Fathers, do not provoke your children unto wrath. Fathers, do not provoke your children unto wrath. You know, when I step back from this story, this passivity of Jacob as a father is just, it's overwhelming in the story. And even his murderous sons, I think, have the moral high ground on him. He's silent. He never reacts. And when he does say something, it's all about his own economy and his own personal safety. You guys, do you see what you did? You're going to get me killed. He says, me, my, I, and myself about nine times or whatever in that sentence at the end of the passage when he's scolding his boys. Now, what his boys did was wrong, no doubt. I'll talk about that in a second. But spiritual principle that he violated, number three, fathers do not provoke your children unto wrath. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, that's an almost an exact quotation from the King James translation. And in the NIV, it uses the word exasperate. If ever a father exasperated his adult sons, Jacob did it. And they come home off the field. 
Now, let me just read what I have written here. Part of one of these statements, and I can't even remember which, came out of a commentary. The rest is my thoughts mixed in. But let me just read it so that we cover it quickly and you get it. The reaction of Simeon and Levi, though it was overly harsh, is indicative of an understanding on their part that they knew their father would likely do nothing. Do you get that? The reaction of Simeon and Levi, though overly harsh, is indicative of an understanding on their part that they knew their father would likely do nothing. Fathers who are spiritually passive have no reason to expect their children to be spiritually powerful. You want to know, you wonder why your kids aren't living for Jesus? It's because you are passive. They don't see their daddy in Sunday school with his Bible open, do they? They don't see their daddy standing up to their no good punk friends and kicking them off their property. I have a good friend the other day. I heard a good story about him. He found out some stuff about a guy that was dating his girl who's a senior in high school. He got on the phone himself. That's a good dad. He didn't tell her, you need to break up with that guy. What's she supposed to do? Hey, babe, my dad says we're supposed to break up, but I'll meet you later. Why don't we get together and talk about it? No, he gets on, he get on the phone himself. He should have went and seen him personally. Probably be in jail now. And in no uncertain terms... He told the boy, don't ever be around my daughter again. And you're not dating my daughter, and your friendship's over, and I don't ever want to see my daughter around you, and you don't get around her. You know what the boy said through the phone? Whatever. Oh, man. That's why every dad should have a sword. Listen, fathers... When we do not take a stand in our home, we exasperate our children. We tell them we're living for Jesus. We tell them we're doing this. We tell them we're doing that. We don't live it out. We don't take a stand. We don't help our children stand. And they don't know what to do. They're getting mixed signals. And Jacob's sons sit there. Their father doesn't say a word. They don't know what to do. You talk about exasperation. So then they go and do something really stupid. We really um, don't have much time, but a fourth spiritual principle, okay? Are you getting these? Spiritual principle number one that they violated is that obedience is the only pathway to blessing. Jacob tried to find blessing without obedience. Spiritual principle number two is that bad company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Spiritual principle number three that he violated is that he exasperated his children. Fathers, do not provoke your children unto wrath, Ephesians 6, 4. And finally... Spiritual principle number four that the boys violated is, number four, do not repay evil for evil. Will you turn to Romans 12 with me very quickly, and we will wrap up with some final thoughts that I think are important for some of you to hear. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, then find chapter 12, and then look down to verse 17 through 21. Spiritual principle number four that they violated is do not repay evil for evil. It says, beginning with verse 17, the Apostle Paul's instruction, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Some of the hardest verses to live out in your Christian life. That begs for the question, then, how do we respond to wicked atrocities and horrible trespasses that go on in our lives? It only take me a minute, but I think that it's very possible that in an audience like this, that some of you have had incredible violations and atrocities take place in your life. And you have incredibly deep hurts like Dinah. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? You have had injustices. You have had adults who are supposed to take care of you, violate you. You may have family members. I was with a man one time in a counseling session and he believed with all his heart that his brother had been murdered by a family member. He just couldn't prove it. I heard a story recently where a woman was married and had kids and her husband left her for her sister. How do you process that kind of atrocity? How do you process that kind of injustice? How do you deal with that, that kind of offense? Embezzlement, stealing. And doesn't it happen so often close to home or in the home? Horrible things. Can I quickly just help you think biblically about a couple of these things. First of all, you need to know from Romans chapter 13, verse 4, you don't have to look there, but you can write it down. It says there that government is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Principle number one is in dealing with horrible atrocities that if it's criminal, call the police and prosecute it. God's agent to bring justice and resolution to your situation is to let government bring its sword and bring wrath upon that person. And you can make up all kinds of things about how government doesn't do its job and so forth, but as much as possible, call the police. It's very difficult to do to a family member. Principle number one, report criminal offense to the proper authorities. Secondly, You need to make up your mind that you will avoid retaliation. You will avoid retaliation. We just read from Romans chapter 12 that a new man, a new creation in Christ, does not do the way the old man does. We do not sharpen our sword and go whack 17-year-old kids or whatever. Now, there's an appropriate way to deal with it. But one of the first things I have to do is I have to avoid retaliation. And did you see that it says, do not, verse 19, take revenge on my friends. Avoid retaliation. Why? To leave room for God's wrath. God knows exactly how to take care of that person. And I believe God would have taken care of Shechem. He might have opened the ground and swallowed them all up. You never know. Those boys way overstepped their boundaries. You have to have a mindset that I am not going to retaliate. And can I suggest that you will need wise counselors around you to process right decision-making in these kinds of atrocities. And you need 
brothers and sisters in Christ around you who you can limit the circle of information, but you need strengthening relationships to avoid retaliation. Report criminal offense, avoid retaliation. Number three, deal with spiritual offenders according to the biblical formulas. I'm talking about a different kind of offense now. There is criminal offense, and then I'm talking about a brother or sister in Christ who has offended you deeply. That's a spiritual offense. It's in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us clearly we're not to take one another to court. You you immediately process it according to Matthew 18. You approach them. You take another party. Then you take them before the elders. You let your elders shepherd you through it. You need help or it will create bitterness and division and schism and Satan will win the victory. It'll be horrible. Galatians 6 also gives instruction. Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Finally, suggestion number four is that you must get to a place in your spiritual life where you trust the justice of God. You trust the justice of God. You say, but it's not fair. Listen, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. Would you want to be that person on the day of judgment, standing before the perfect judge, the Lord Jesus Christ? And have to answer for the atrocities that they have done? Can you imagine? Yeah, I did that. I did it and I didn't care. I'd like to see somebody at the foot of the great white throne look at Jesus and say, whatever. It won't happen. They won't be able to speak. There won't be any air in the room. Listen, there is a day of justice coming. You must trust the justice of God. Those are four very simple, very generic statements. The last thing in the world you need to do is let this ruin your life. You need to get help. Well, what a story this is, huh? Horrible story. Genesis 34. Spiritual principles are easily violated in our lives every day, aren't they? Knowing we should be where God wants us and not quite getting there. Thinking it's not that important to obey. And so forth, as Jacob did, didn't he? Well, may the Spirit of God take the Word of God and help you live in obedience every day. Let's bow in prayer. Let's just be quiet at the close of this message for a minute. There may be some very wounded, hurt people here that you need the comfort of your Heavenly Father as you process, even as maybe this passage has reminded you of atrocities in your own life. You need to lay them down at the foot of the cross. You need to trust the justice of your Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus who has that sword that comes out of His mouth. You need to walk in newness of life. Don't process this the way the world does. And then I think particularly fathers here, we need to step it up, don't we? Protect our daughters and our children. And then 18 to 25-year-olds, you need to get a clue, man. It does matter where you go and who you're with. You're not tough enough to make it on your own.
Father, help us to trust you and to obey you and to walk in the truth. Teach us your ways, Father. May your spirit bring conviction in our lives where it is needed, comfort in our hearts and healing where it is needed. And may we learn how sweet it is to just trust in you, to walk humbly before you, knowing that not one good thing will you withhold from him whose walk is upright. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.